Mm. Did you see this thing that Microsoft's going to start forcing Outlook links to open in Edge? So if you're in Outlook and you click a link, it just defaults to Edge. doesn't care what your browser is on your system. That is dirty. <sighs> Microsoft is pushing Edge so hard. The whole, like, you have to use Edge to use our AIs yeah. is also dirty. Uh-huh. There wasn't an antitrust judgment against them for this type of stuff in the 90s, was there? No, I'm, I'm definitely not remembering that. Yeah, it totally didn't have anything to do with the browser. No, no, no. And their behavior around their browser and <laughs> how maniacal they were about forcing people to <laughs> ship and use their browser. It had nothing to do with that. It's no good. Microsoft, you can do better. Do you need to sync to this level? I don't, I don't think so. Not anymore. I know. It feels like it feels like old school tactics. Yeah. Yeah, but it might be a better environment for them to do it in. You know, everyone's doing it these days. But that doesn't make it right. Yeah, they're supposed to learn with their age and their wisdom, right? They're supposed to be the better, wiser tech company now. I mean, they did they did go down the Balmer route eventually and target developers, 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 didn't they? Yeah. And it seems to be working for them. Uh, even the Home Assistant folks are like, yeah, they have the best voice as a service generation service if we want to convert text to speech. They got the best pricing. They got the best system. For now? Yeah, for now. Yeah. I'm doing a ton of stuff with uh, Azure at work at the minute. And, you know, the the whole platform that Microsoft have built there is is quite impressive. Yeah. I mean, to their credit, it took them a while, but they got it. You know, they the first iterations before it was called Azure were really rough. I mean, I heard so many horror stories about the sysadmins that were running around keeping it just barely running and burning out and burning oh, out. But I think over time, and I I don't know, but it seems like as they just kind of capitulated and started using more Linux, <laughs> the server seemed to get more reliable. <laughs> hey, speaking of, did you see LTT did a video this week? They're switching to Linux for a lot of their backend stuff at last. No. Yeah? No. Oh, yeah. I thought they'd never get there, to be honest with you. I thought they'd never get there just because they, you know, are, are big gamers and they're big new device people. And so a lot of times that means brand new manufacturer drivers for a lot of those esoteric devices, which just kind of gives people a Windows first bias. So I just thought that's always. Well, I think a lot of it stems from Linus himself. You know, I'm talking about their server infrastructure here specifically. Mm -hmm. He wanted to double down on the Windows storage spaces side of things. And I think that uh, Jake guy that they've got over there is quite into Unraid and quite into TrueNAS. And they've been doing a lot of videos about that lately. So go check that out if you're interested. Interesting. Good for them. Good for them for being open-minded to possibly a better solution. You have to imagine with the kind of data they have, it's got to be a nightmare to manage that with NTFS. Well, there was a there was a video they posted where one of their servers, this is several years ago now, where one of their servers completely died and they actually ended up having to use Wendell as their data recovery specialist to try and reconstruct wow. the ZFS array. <laughs> and I think they got only got like 95% of the data back, but still that was a pretty darn good result. Yeah, yeah, I recall that. And, then, and Is that the same time it caught on fire? There was also a time their server caught on fire. So, <laughs> you know, they make, they make the Cottonwood incident we had here at the studio not seem so bad. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, you know, it's, it's a whole thing. Building infrastructure as normal people and not as a big enterprise with huge budgets and stuff like that. You've got to make compromises. You've got to think, you know, my power bill is going to be X if I go this route. Okay, that's, that's a certain compromise I'm willing to make. But then with a big power bill comes a big air conditioning bill and then a big battery backup bill and, 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 and. So, you know. And it adds up because it just keeps running and running and running. So, you know, you get five, if you're lucky and your server lasts five plus years, you look back at the cost and you go, oh, that actually right. started to add up. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And as, as you know, I know we're talking about LTT right now, um, but as they add more services, they, they're just expanding into their lab facility, for example. It's interesting seeing their journey going from kind of the the skunk work days at the beginning to where they are now, where everything is 10 gig a minimum, and there's even 100 gig links going into that new building they've got. It's just interesting watching other people go on that journey, you know? Yeah, and really push some of that stuff to its edge. When it comes to video editing and doing that off of a network drive, I think they're really pushing it beyond what most people do because they're working with red footage. I mean, they, they do proxies and, and stuff, but too, it's just a massive job they're doing over there. And it puts stress on the disk array. It puts stress on the operating systems. It puts stress on the network and all the networking equipment and the drivers that manage all of that. It really pushes the stuff. 
I can see the appeal, you know, the 10 gig upgrade that I did pretty recently. I'm editing all of my YouTube videos now straight off the NAS. Nothing is local on this laptop as I'm working. And it it's it's nice, I tell you. Like I just I ingest the footage and it lives on the server forever. And that's it. There's no copying things back and forth and it's it's the dream, I tell you. And it also means you don't have to pay heaps of money for Apple's overpriced storage options in their laptops or their desktops because you're putting that money into your server, which benefits the whole network. I know we're meandering a little at the beginning of this episode, but permit me this. I was looking at the framework laptops this week, and I, I've been in the Apple ecosystem looking at prices for for too long because I was looking at this framework system that you can buy, and it came out, I think, the spec that I wanted with uh, 32 gigs of RAM and a terabyte SSD and uh, four ports and all that. It came out to only $1,100, and I was like, huh? Where's the rest? I was expecting double. <laughs> well, you can spend it in modules if you want. You can you can really stack up on the modules. But the modules are just USB-C. And so if if you're at a conference or something and someone on stage needs an HDMI port for their MacBook Pro, like, well, I've got a dongle. Literally whip it out of your laptop that, where it's stored permanently. It's such a genius idea to have these modular dongle slots. What I want to see them do is take this system to the next level. And they kind of have the pieces now. but. One of the things they've done, and I really, you got to respect, is they've made it possible to swap out the main board between the old additions and the new additions. So if you wanted to get a 13th or 11th gen or a 12th gen Intel, depending on which unit you got, you can actually swap the main board out. So great. What I would like to be able to do is then use that main board as a server. Oh, yeah. Like maybe like have a little case, something could be cheap. I don't care. It could You know, something I could put that board into. They need to release to make that a viable proposition. Uh, they already release a 3D printed design f- to turn it into a desktop. That's great. What Chris is saying, and what I, what I want to see too, is some way to insert a module into maybe the M.2 slot or something of that ilk. Maybe uh, what's the Oculink uh, connector, which is like a PCIe bridge connector. Sure. Where you could connect up to, let's say, finger in the air, four or five or something SATA hard drives, something like that. And yeah. then it's, And then it's perfect. You know, yep. low power. Yep. yep. And and it might maybe you need a slightly faster laptop, but it's probably going to be just fine for a home NAS, maybe a media server. And you could just keep getting life out of that. And then, you know, or you could if you could just buy the board and hook up a power supply to it and start using it with a few discs, that'd be really awesome. So nice. The disc is the trickiest part, right? That's the trickiest part. Yeah. So it's got to solve the storage problem, but it would be so useful. PCIe lanes in general are the tricky part. When you're looking at off-the-shelf hardware these days, the only thing that has any decent number are the AMD stuff, but then you don't have QuickSync. And mm-hmm. for media servers, uh, you know my opinions. It's it's the MVP. It's the way to go. I also really like Thunderbolt. I know I'm a weirdo, but I like Thunderbolt. And they still don't have it in the AMD systems. Like They experimented with it for a couple of years, and then it just never materialized. And it's, it's an Intel-only thing. And I... I want my I want my Thunderbolt four if I can if I'm gonna ex, you know externally connect a disc or maybe it's a NIC for some reason or even a sound card even sound cards are better over Thunderbolt because it's a PCI connection so there's zero latency compared to USB. I love it. Ten gig NIC you need that bandwidth. Lots of hard drives or or any kind of SSDs you need that bandwidth. No, I'm with you. It's a good idea. There's a link in our live chat where Wendell is talking to Alan Jude about Linus's data backup. We'll put a link to that in the show notes down, That's fun. <laughs> down below the episode if you're interested uh, to see where Wendell goes for tech support. <laughs> it's Alan Jude. <laughs> it takes it takes a village to, to save their data. Yeah, sometimes, and, sometimes. And it comes back to Canadians, you know, just saying. Oh, my goodness. We walked right into that one, Alex. <laughs> we didn't welcome Brent to the show. Good evening, afternoon, time-appropriate greetings. Hey Brent. Well, hello. Thanks for having me. I, I mean, it's just second, yeah. second like nature. We're just used now. to having you here. You're part of the furniture now, almost. Yeah. So you weren't worthy of a welcome. I just moved <laughs> from one coast to the other. You know, every other episode, it seems. Yeah. You're hopping nice weather is what you're doing. Because now <laughs> we're really what I'm doing. Yeah. Now we're getting the glorious weather here now. And it's, it's just too much where Alex is. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. It's still nice where I am. In fact, I think it's going to be like 10 degrees tonight, like Celsius. Hmm. Right. 50 in silly units. 
these are things I'll be paying very close attention to in the future. A little foreshadowing there. Mm. But, you know, as we have gathered together today, it was Home Assistant Release Party Day. And sometimes we don't mention these on the show, and sometimes we do, kind of depending on what gets covered. But I thought it was kind of worth mentioning the 2023.5 release because it sort of seems like they're really delivering on a, in a big way on the voice control. And I'm really impressed. They have updated the UI so you can manage different assistant backends. So you could have Alexa, you could have Google, you could have the Home Assistant uh, cloud version now. And you can also do local only Whisper or Piper based, which Piper is their uh, text-to-speech system. And you can do, you can pick and choose and create different pipelines and you can switch between the pipelines in the assistant UI. They just have a little drop down. You can choose which pipeline that you want to so use. so great. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a huge project, right? Because getting all of the things you can do in Home Assistant that could be spoken means having something that understands all those words and trying to get something intelligent enough that can understand all those words and process it fast enough on maybe even a Raspberry Pi. And we're not quite there yet. Like with Piper, you're going to get about seven seconds uh-huh. in or six seconds. But the clever thing the Home Assistant folks are doing is they're then caching the result. So once it's produced the response once, like so if you say, turn on the lights, and then it says, okay, the lights are on, it generates it once, and then it caches that and then, so the next time you say turn on the lights, it's instantaneous. That's intelligent. Yeah. There are some niceties they've done there to allow for local actually possible. And the other thing they're doing is if you do want to do local voice processing, you can just host it as a Docker container, Piper or Whisper on any system you have. Oh, that, okay. Now I see where you're going. It doesn't have to be on the home assistant. Device. Right. So you could have maybe a really powerful x86 box that's doing the transcription stuff. And then just sending the results back to a Raspberry Pi running home assistant. Okay, so my brain instantly goes, what happens if that powerful node isn't available? Does it just fall on its ass and go, oh, what do I do now? You'd want to drop down the assistant pipeline and just switch to a different assistant pipeline. Um, And they make it so easy if you just buy Nebucasa Cloud. And then you get the best voice, too, because they're using Azure on the back end. And the way they're doing Azure is better than, like, uh, like a typical way to integrate with Azure, because... The API terms of service they're using are a lot more stringent about data use and how they record things um, and how they use the voice. But so when you configure the Home Assistant pipeline, you can just choose the different backends you want and you can create as many different pipelines as you want. And then when you're in the system, you just switch between them. So if your local box went offline, you could switch to the cloud one. Or if you were offline, you could switch to your local one or, or so on. That flexibility is so nice. I feel like especially when a piece of technology is a little bit in its infancy in, in terms of being uh, integrated, that having those options is actually sweet. Mm-hmm. And then their local one will get better and better as they work on it. That's mm-hmm. uh, hedging their bets. I like that. Well, it turned out to be a pretty smart bet on the Home Assistant front, didn't it? With uh, Google and Amazon somewhat shuttering both of their voice assistant divisions and gutting them from the inside out. Right as chatbots and perhaps natural language interaction is going to hit a whole new level of popularity. Right place, right time, I think. Yeah. Um, And one of the things they're doing right is the gentleman behind Piper, which is the text-to-speech engine that you can host locally, they hired him full-time at Nebucasa. So now he's working as part of the Nebucasa team. And every month he's delivered a feature update with the monthly Home Assistant updates. And they started with text, and now they're getting to the full voice to text and text to voice. And one of the things they're kind of pointing people at, which I just absolutely love is a little ESP 32 powered, tiny little microphone that you could just blast around your house everywhere. And it acts as a tiny little mic to interact with home assistant. And it's so slick. Cause that was, that was always the thing about the Google homes was uh, love them or hate them. They had pretty good microphones. You still needed one in each room. But they were designed, you know, like with the HomePods and stuff, they were designed to pick pick you up from across the room. But the ESP Home and microphone combo is going to be, I, I don't know, how much? What, 10, 15 bucks a pop? Something like that? Well, they're really popular right now, and they're $13 when they're selling like crazy. Yeah. yeah. 
I mean, there will be a few hotspots, I think, where you would probably want a microphone as you're coming home, like by your front door, say. Well, this is the kind of microphone you could actually be comfortable putting in your bedroom because it's all local. It's not going anywhere. Right. And once you actually trust the technology, because it's all local on your land and it's all open source, it really changes maybe what you're willing to allow. Yeah. I'd be willing to have a microphone next to my bed if it's all local and controlled by me. I have cameras in my home and in the studio that I would never put up if it was streaming to the internet. This microphone's kind of a similar thing. Takov751 says in the live chat that Piper has an Alan Pope voice. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> so they have, they are, they're actively soliciting more voices. <laughs> they can't encourage copywritten voices like Majel from Star Trek or other places. But if the community were to create one and start using it, I mean, it's an open source project, so. <laughs> that is so great. <laughs> I guess they're recycling some of the Mycroft work there then, are they? Yeah, yeah. I want to use, I want to call mine computer too, like in Star Trek. I'm going to call it computer. Jarvis is the obvious one, right? Yep, Jarvis would be great. That would be pretty nice. I'll put a link to Piper in the show notes because that is, that's really cool. That's the local neural text-to-speech system. And they have different models depending on if you have a fast system or a slow system and languages and some of the languages and models have multiple different voice types that you can iterate through. It's surprising how far they are. And there's community creative voices. And yeah, so they're really making good progress. I think, you know, it's not a hundred percent yet, but it's, if you have um, the latest home assistant that released in May and you have SSL set up with your instance, or you're using home assistant cloud, you can just upgrade and then you can go install the add-ons you need to install it, the probably you want to install the whisper add-on and you want to install the piper add-on once those are set up they'll automatically show up as integrations that you just need to go click configure so they're enabled then you go into the home assistant settings or the assistant settings i should say it's a it's a new there's a new settings area that they introduced with this release it's called voice assistance and in there you can set up your voice assistant pipelines once you're done, and I know this sounds like a lot of steps and it kind of is, but once you're all done, it can all run on one box. It can all run locally and you can start using local voice control, which is, I think, something that a lot of home assistant users have wanted for a very long time. They love the voice control, but they don't want the Google device or the Alexa device. And now we finally have it. And it's even easier if you have Nebuchadnezzar Cloud and you're okay with using the Azure API. So how long will it take you to integrate this into your, your system, <laughs> well, I've already, I've already turned it on here oh, at the studio. Okay, all right. I did not have uh, SSL um, for my home assistant in, instance here at the studio because it's just a little local thing that I access over Tailscale when I'm remote. But it got me to install the Duck DNS add-on as well, which will do dynamic DNS and automatically sets up Let's Encrypt for your home assistant instance all automatically. It's so stupid easy. I was like, well, no excuses. Yeah, <laughs> I got it. I got it. Absolutely. So I also installed the Duck DNS add-on. Finally got SSL set up for the studio instance, which is nice. It's nice to have. And it's great. I'm, I'm, I am very impressed with the Home Assistant Nebuchadnezzar Cloud Voice. I think it's better than Siri or Google. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's impressive. Mm-hmm. The Piper one, I'd say, is the local one you can do. And I'm doing like the medium one not like super fancy but i am running it on my home assistant blue hardware locally so that's slick it's like the Waze voice that we've been hearing recently it's a little more robotic it's still totally understandable it's totally acceptable and the fact that it's local means cool and it's even kind of retro in some ways but it's not like was that a human you know you're not doing that with it like you are with the nebuchadnezzar cloud one that's like whoa yeah it's really impressive so it's here did they miss a trick though they should have called it Pied Piper. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> it's the first thing I thought of. <laughs> Tailscale.com slash self-hosted. Go there to try it out for yourself for up to 100 devices now and support the show while you're checking out Tailscale. Simple and secure and straightforward to get up and get going on your devices. It's a match VPN built on WireGuard. Tailscale is zero config. You get up and running in just minutes. You got five minutes, you'll get it running on three of your devices. Tailscale lets you easily manage resources and ACLs. It's perfect for us self-hosters who want to have a little ad hoc networking or maybe a back-end flat mesh network. 
for some static URLs and domain names. It's great for that stuff. It makes the old VPN setup look ridiculous. I put Tailscale on my mobile device, and now I'm syncing all of my private information to NextCloud over Tailscale. No public ports, no public internet anywhere. And because it's built on WireGuard, I trust that encryption. I know that noise protocol is reliable. And with their client and all of the platform compatibility, I have everything from my Pis to my VPSs and my VMs and my mobile devices all running Tailscale. There's even a Tailscale Home Assistant add-on to put your Home Assistant on Tailscale. Even when you're separated by firewalls and subnets or that dreaded double NAT, Tailscale just works. We use it to keep all the family computers connected as well. I can provide them tech support that way. I can send them files with Tailscale Send. I can check on their systems to make sure they're up. It's how I remote into the studio systems without having to have inbound ports or anything like that. And the devices connect directly to each other so the traffic is going to machine to machine. So when you're on the same LAN, you're taking advantage of those LAN speeds. Go try it for yourself for free for up to 100 machines and see why we just love it. Why both Alex and I have been deploying it for ages now, and we give it the big hearty recommendation here at the show. Tailscale.com slash self-hosted. That's how you support the show and try it out on 100 machines. That's not a limited time trial thing either. Your account can have 100 machines for free. Tailscale.com slash self-hosted. Well, one of the things I was most excited to get my hands dirty with while I'm here in Seattle, Chris, is your garden. You've been like talking about this last year. You're like, I think maybe we'll upgrade. And it turns out arriving here, upgrade you have. And I'm curious, what are the big plans? Upgrade we must. And uh, it's going to lead me, I hate to say it, to deploying my third Home Assistant (laughs) instance. I'm now going to have three Home Assistant systems. I've thought about it. I think it's the only way to go. Okay. I hate it. Okay, talk me through. Talk me through this. Three is a lot. So we got all excited and kind of got ahead of ourselves and committed to a massive, massive garden space that's going to be potentially hundreds of dollars a month to water. Okay, I need to paint the audience that are listening a picture here. Chris is scrolling through some pictures, and he has sent his drone up to take a picture of the field and then edit it in, I I can only assume is paint, (laughs) MS Paint or something, and drawn on the word potatoes over a specific <laughs> rectangle and then onions and beets and flowers and, and cu- cukes, cucumbers, I suppose. <laughs> yep. Yep. You got it. <laughs> we'll put a link to the, uh, the pictures in the show notes, but uh, there you go. There you and, are, listener. There is a picture for your mental imagery. And Brent can confirm this isn't even the largest garden. You know, you can kind of, in the last picture, you can kind of start to see the corner. I just didn't put it in there because it reveals more location information because <laughs> it's so big. You, have to, you can see the crossroads and everything because I have to send the drone up so far to get a picture of it. Um, and so I realized, well, if I'm, spending a hun- if I'm spending hundreds of dollars a month on water, well, that means less road trips. That means less gadgets. We got to figure this out. And uh, listener Dominic is coming up later this week. And he is an irrigation specialist. That's what him and his brother do full time. And so Brent and I, in the meantime, while we're waiting for Dominic, are trying to front run ways we can automate the watering. So we've been looking into ESP attached soil sensors, pH sensors, temperature sensors, obviously, relays to actuate servos for watering. Some solenoid valves and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that explains the relay. Okay. Yeah, and so we're trying to come up with different methods to automate the garden monitoring and watering, obviously collect the data, but there's one flaw that I had to account for, and that is Lady Jupes leaves sometimes, and (laughs) we take the servers with us. It's true. That's a very good point, actually. It's not a problem most people have. You need a third home assistant instance. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I need a third home assistant. It's unbelievable. Oh, and so I think I'm going to do like a a waterproof box of some kind and probably have it mounted outside. I've got an industrial atom-based PC that we received that came out of a um, Tesla solar wall. And Shh, you're not supposed to say that. Well, I didn't say who. And I just said it came out. <laughs> and uh, at least I believe. I'm not actually sure because I, I got this off the back of a truck. And um, it's really hardy. So it's kind of ideal for this job. 
being outside in the sun, it's fine, right? So I'm thinking, build it, you know, base it around that, run Home Assistant on there, and then connect all of the garden devices to this. Hey, look at this puppy. It's got a serial port. It's got, it's got like five serial ports. Oh, yeah. yeah this oh, thing yeah. is fancy. You, you might need to hook up a COM port or two. Oh, yeah. wow. H- how are you going to power this, Chris? Have you given thought to that? No. <laughs> I mean, it's going to have to be, the computer itself is going to have to be constant. But that's fine. Is it? You know, that's- because, you know, I mean, relays. Okay, well, talk me through what you're thinking about for triggering. We we are considering having the ESP relays, the ESPs in the relay do the triggering and just having the home assistant do the data collection. Yeah. And maybe like manual activating of water that then would also turn on the relay. But yeah, I think we could build it in a way where we wouldn't need home assistant there to actually do the watering because it would just go based on the so- uh, on the soil sensors that would read back to the ESP. The ESP would then activate the relay based on the, you know, the conductivity of the soil sensors. Third Home Assistant instance is a viable and a valiant solution to this. <laughs> could you could you connect back via Tailscale to the studio Home Assistant that doesn't leave somehow? Hmm. Would there be internet permanently there, even if Jupes is gone? Yeah, I could, I could, uh, I could attach to nearby Wi-Fi, I think. Because the, the data logging is just a nice to have, right? Yeah, for the most part. And if you yeah. leave that running the whole time, that's a huge power budget you've got to account for and all the rest of it. The ESP mm-hmm. homes are going to be fine on, you know, like a cu- couple of car batteries or something, probably. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, an always-on PC is a different animal. Well, and it does resolve the issue of theft and those kind of things. Not too worried about that, but yeah. Yeah, I'm going to come steal your potatoes. That's what's going to happen. I definitely want. I'm more worried about garden. Yeah, I definitely want the system to run if the home assistant is down because you don't want the garden to dry up. Of course, right? Yeah, how dependent it is on the home assistant. It's a good question. I the biggest thing I could see is using the home assistant for on the regular, besides just checking on like the graphs and gauges, would be it's really hot today. Let's run it again or something like we go from some sort of mm-hmm. manual override mm-hmm. where we want to go in there and activate something. Or- so what are your triggers going to be? Are you going to have sensors in the ground detecting moisture levels or that kind of stuff? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Moisture, temperature, probably pH. We've bought a couple of different, I mean, the beautiful thing about all this ESP related stuff is it's relatively cheap. You know, we got a, like a six pack of sensors for 10 bucks. So if they don't work out, <laughs> It's not the end of the world. So I've just put a link in the show notes uh, for you. This is a feature of ESP Home, which you may or may not be aware of. This is called Automation and Templates. Now, this lets you program the actual ESP devices to be, quote, unquote, uh-huh. smart. Right. And so based on a specific sensor reading that's connected directly to that ESP device, you could then use that to trigger the relay directly on the ESP. So all the logic, all the processing happens on that embedded processor. Yeah, that's beautiful. That would be best case. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the way to do it. Alex, have you done a project that had this kind of similar scope in mind? Kind of. I had a house plant that uh, kept wanting to die on me for various reasons. Right. And so I thought, right, I'm going to try and automate this with a... Uh, I got a jug of water. I put the jug of water next to the plant and I got a little USB-powered, 5-volt-powered pump uh, a little bit of uh, clear perspex tubing and a, a, a capacitive moisture sensor that I put into the soil that within about three months corroded and was completely garbage, which led to the entire small bucket of water I had emptying itself into the plant and all over the floor. Oh, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Alex, I'm sorry. I think your programming went wrong there. Well, no, I mean, the sensors got basically got stuck open because the corrosion, those are the exact ones I used. I'm sorry Uh-oh. to say. Uh-oh. But that's what I mean. You'd, I don't think you uh, thought of every failure state. So we're learning from your experience here. We that's true. Put that Brent, in place. Well, there should Brent be a has maximum been... runtime per, I don't know, sure. per hour or something. Yeah, that's but then probably why they're so dangerous. It's cheap. not like you're going to flood the meadow, is it? You know, if, I mean, my, my, my house plant overflowed onto a wooden floor. That was a big problem. Yeah. Yeah. Brent has been thinking maybe we epoxy the electronics at the top that seem to short out. Yeah. Some people use, um, Oh, Alex, you might remi- remind me of what this is called, but a coating to cover the electronics. Conformal is... coating. Con- I, that's see, it. I know. That's it. He's a language Drone racing. That's, uh, <laughs> that's where I've used it before. Because I, I didn't want to crash my drone in the snow one time, 
and have everything short out. So I covered it in conformal coating and crashed it into the snow, and it's still shorted out. <laughs> <laughs> you missed a spot, I think. Obviously, yes. <laughs> so I've seen that as advice. Uh, however, um, some folks say that eventually it just kind of wears off, you know, from it does. being moved around or whatever. So epoxy, I thought, was kind of the next crazy step. Plus, Chris and I have an affection for epoxy, we love if it. no one's ever noticed. It's, I, think, I think it's a great tool. Apply it where you can. Um, it's the RVer's friend. I, I broke my sink last month and I said to Brent, how do I fix it? And he goes, epoxy. epoxy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's the first place you should start until you find a better solution. But <laughs> typically, you know, it's a good place to start. Yeah. 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 So the corrosion typically doesn't happen, I mean, fully outdoors like you're planning. It, it may well happen at the connectors. Typically what happens is when this is submerged in a slightly damp environment, like a plant pot, uh, mm-hmm. the, the actual... The way it works is it measures the kind of electrical current between two, what are they called, anodes, I think they're called. Uh, and that little bit of electricity is enough over over a very short period of time for me to actually corrode the the copper and then turn it green and then short it out. So uh, that was the corrosion I was talking about. But in a fully outdoor scenario, just putting it under a little, I don't know, like a plastic lid or something might be a hmm. really simple solution maybe even like a solo cup with a hole punched through it for the wire or something yeah like a soda bottle or something mm-hmm. over the mm-hmm. top so i'm relatively new well i'm absolutely new to this esp stuff and to all these sensors and things so it's been really fun for me this week chris to kind of dive into that at first i was quite frightened and then quite lost and then it's thrilling when you see all the stuff you can do it is yeah and i'm learning that it's the details that really matter uh, I did learn there are two different types of soil sensors. We found a video that was really great that I think maybe we should uh, link to. All right, I'll check my YouTube history. And so the two sensor types that I've learned, at least this far, is one of them is a conductive style and the other one is a resistive. So Alex, you mentioned having two probes going to the ground. Uh, I learned that those are the resistive ones and uh. that those... and. Because they're kind of like anodes, they they rust within days. Right. Yeah. But well, that I, was like my experience. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And that's a fairly common uh, scenario. So the conductive ones last much, 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 okay. much longer because okay. they don't have that problem. Well, let's try it. There's probably more expensive ones too that like just have Zigbee or Z-Wave built into them that the audience has used. But the the nice it's a balance, right? Yeah, and maybe that is a. Maybe it is a better way to go, but the nice thing about these was the cost. Is it just felt like even if you accidentally were digging and you destroyed one, it's like okay, well individually they're like three dollar sensors, and you just can re- and each part is modular, so you can just rewire that part to the ESP, or if the ESP shorts out, you just pop out the ESP and pop in a new one. Or it's actually a, I think a, a really fun design problem because we're thinking about you know a. How many sensors do you want? Right. Notice I didn't say need. It's more of a want at this point. <laughs> but like every single plot has different vegetables in it. You know, you've got now you're at the scale where you've got rows of vegetables to deal with. So each of them wants something a little different. So you can, you know, customize that much. And this watering system we're putting in can also be built to be fairly modular so that you only turn on certain you know, mm-hmm. sections at a time. So it can, this can get fancy really quickly, I think. Mm, oh, for sure. It's, it, I think. Because all the standard is all standardized stuff, some of it we could just add on as we need too. Like we could go with a pretty basic system initially, where we're getting the data and the and mm-hmm. the watering's happening, and then I could see us starting to like as we collect the information, realize what areas need more, oh yeah, and less, and then just sort of adapting the system for that. Well, I think maybe that's what we need to keep in mind is building the system as modular in every respect mm-hmm. as we possibly can. So using connectors, you know, between sensors so that, oh, maybe we don't want a moisture sensor here. Maybe we want something else. Or maybe we want two sensors. How do you accomplish that? And mm-hmm. so standardizing somehow on some connectors would be amazing and having... Uh, yeah, I know, would love advice from anybody in the audience on standardized connectors we could use to bring all of the, you know, like the, the ESP and the relay together. Or the ESP and the sensor would be great if we didn't have to solder all this stuff because my soldering foo is nothing. It's weak. And then the other question I have is, do people know of really good outdoor cases for these ESPs? Because I went on Amazon and there's just crap for cases. It's just junk. It's just like 3D printed boxes that you can drill holes into or $30 weather sealed, you know, nice looking, but a little expensive if you want to have a bunch of these. So I'd love tips on that. You probably just want something like a junction box with a a gasket a gasket to it. Yeah, I can see that. 
I can see a junction box working. For people like us, this is really fun because there's so many things to think of. One, another one is uh, we're going to need some cabling between mm-hmm. certain things. So this probably needs to be exterior rated because it's going to be there at least mm-hmm. at least all, all summer and all fall. And what voltage is it carrying? So how thick is it? Yeah. How long's it got? Yeah, all that stuff. Voltage drop on, you know, let's say it's five Oof. volts, for example. Voltage drop's a real thing. Oh, yeah. Right. I take it this will not be the only time we bring this up on the show. On the show. <laughs> I don't know, man. It's ooh, it's going to be it's a big job. It's going to be a big job, but I'm gonna put a it link. seems to be the only way to reasonably manage a, 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 I mean, it's essentially a farm at this scale. I mean, you're, you're trying to build essentially a commercial grade industrial self-watering planting system here, aren't you? On so. the cheap. Yeah. On the cheap. Yeah. What, what could go wrong? <laughs> in a hurry. I'm going to put a link in the show notes to a product that Xiaomi makes. Made? Makes? I don't know. Uh, it's called the Xiaomi Flora. And this is a wireless uh, moisture sensor for soil. Uh, people use it in plant pots for the most part. So I don't know if it's weatherproof, but it it, uh, it works on Bluetooth low energy. So it might be, okay. might be worth a look. Yeah. And if anyone heard anything that is like really wrong or going in the absolute wrong direction, please let us know now since we're in the design phase and sooner is better. Yes, that's, that is for sure. Yeah. We're just getting started and uh, a little overwhelmed with all the options. Chris's digital garden. <laughs> yeah. It's a nerd garden is what it is. That's a show title. Planting right nerd seeds. Yeah. <laughs> Linode.com slash SSH. Linode has some exciting news. They're now part of Akamai. All of the developer-friendly tools, including the Linode Cloud Manager, their API, the command line client that I love, all the stuff that helps you build, deploy, and scale in the cloud, they're still available, but now combined with Akamai's power and global reach. And with that help, they're expanding Linode services to offer more cloud computing resources and tools while providing that classic, reliable, and affordable, scalable solution for end users and businesses of all sizes. And as part of Akamai's global network of offerings, data centers will expand worldwide, giving you even more access to more resources to help you grow your business and serve your customers, your clients, or whoever it might be. So why wait? Go build something for yourself, for your business. Experience the power of Linode, now Akamai. Visit linode.com slash SSH to learn how Linode, now Akamai, can help scale your applications from the cloud to the edge and get $100 in credit while you support the show. Linode.com slash SSH. So I was browsing Reddit this week, as you do, and I came across what looked like a really pretty interesting little project for those of you that are into Prometheus. There is a Plexporters Energize thread linked in the show notes down below. And this chap, J.S. Clayton, has written a Prometheus Plex exporter for all of his Plex data. Oh, visualizing all his binging and whatnot? <laughs> yeah, it lets you visualize pretty much everything. So if you have a look in our show notes, Chris, there's a, a link under dashboards for days. Just have a look at this <laughs> screenshot. There'll be a link in the show notes, of course. Look at okay. the amount of data that this thing exposes in Grafana. Oh, gosh. This is a dashboard for a decade. <laughs> yeah. So wow. it, it can do stuff like expose who's currently playing, you know, the current location, etc., uh, etc., et the percent, percentage watched, you know, whether they're transcoding, what the quality of the original media is, all that kind of stuff, like like you would imagine. It's a bit like Tautuli in a lot of ways, but through Grafana rather than Prometheus right. and Grafana rather than through a, a separate app like Tautuli. But then he, this guy's got all sorts of other stuff, like uh, some really interesting charts, just like a heat map to show certain times of the day where things are, are most popular for the last you know month or so, what the current bandwidth is, how many episodes, what the uh, trends are, you know, how many episodes has he added to the server this week or this month or whatever. The quality of the you know the profiles of the videos, it's wonderful. The bit rates of it, yeah. The temperatures of the system, like. Prometheus, when you get into it, it's one of these things. Um, for those that aren't familiar, Prometheus is a, it's like a, it's a scraper. So it's a, it, Prometheus stores data, but it does so by scraping remote endpoints. So you would run a container or some kind of, uh, some kind of script or, or service on a remote system. Prometheus would then reach out to that system and scrape the information from that very basic like text file essentially which is typically hosted through a a web server although not always and then ingest that information into its local database 
You then use Grafana to query the Prometheus database, the time series database, to create the pretty graphs with certain PromQL, Prometheus query language queries. And that's how this guy has made this, frankly, astonishingly beautiful. And yeah, it uh, not, needs a not safe for work warning, this thing. I tease the uh, over overdone dashboard thing, but this I got respect for. I can't help it. Even as a dashboard skeptic, I got a little bit of respect for this one. It's, it's beautiful. I just look at this. I'd want a monitor long enough to display this entire thing all the time. <laughs> yeah, it's quite big, isn't it? Yeah, you'd need a long one. It'd definitely be a a, a vertical monitor. <laughs> well, what's interesting, though, actually, is if I scroll through the screenshot, I notice that the icons repeat three or four times on the left-hand side. Is that a Grafana feature on long dashboards? If so, that's awesome. I didn't know that. That's a good question. I bet somebody out there, you know one of our listeners out there has a huge monitor. Yeah. Well, I hope I say this name correctly. Vaiham wrote in about scaling up Joplin. I just wanted to point out that there is also an official Joplin server, a Joplin sync server, for synchronizing between devices. I have set up this server and synchronized my Joplin data between three Windows, one Linux, one Android, one iOS, and one iPadOS device. It also allows sharing notes with other accounts created on the Joplin server. Oh, that part's nice. I have not set up the Joplin server, but I have been enjoying using Joplin with oh, VS Code. Still. Yeah. Yeah, because it's just like opening VS Code to the notes. It's got some holding power. Yeah, VS Code does. And Joplin's <laughs> okay, in there. I see how it is. Um, but the, the reason why I didn't go with the Joplin server, which is available also as a Docker container, is because one of the perks of deploying NextCloud is there's a lot of things that can just use NextCloud as their back end, and then you don't need to run a separate piece of software. And that's been one of the biggest perks of having NextCloud is just plugging stuff into that existing infrastructure. And then with Joplin on NextCloud, the way you share it with other folks is you just share that folder with their NextCloud account. And then they set up Joplin to point to that folder and you're sharing notes. That is sweet. It's all the notes, but that's how the wife and I want to do that. So it works for us. Does Joplin still do the thing where it has random obfuscated file names? You know, I haven't really looked at the file names much in a while, so that's very possible. Yeah, because yeah. that, that was a turnoff. And it also, when I was, um, I remember in the middle of writing that Ars Technica photo uh, breakdown article, I'd, I'd spent a good couple of hours worth of writing and it lost that for me. Uh, no. So I've never no, quite no, forgiven Joplin no. for that. And I think no, I was using Nextcloud backed sync for that. Although oh, I, great. I don't remember <laughs> exactly. Great. I'm sorry, but. You know, oh, data loss is one of those things like you just don't forgive it easily, do you? Mm-hmm. No, no, you learn, you learn to avoid. I have yeah. broken down and paid for Obsidian Sync, the uh, proprietary one. You know, I was using iCloud Sync before, mm-hmm. mostly for that cross-platform compatibility with Linux and uh, Android. Yeah, they get you. What is it? Is it like twenty bucks a month or what? how much is it? I think it was like a hundred dollars for the year or something. I mean, mm. if you use it a lot, I'm using it every day for everything at the moment. So I think about what I used to pay for Evernote back in the day and it's not that bad. I mean, I wish it was cheaper and I wish they put more effort into making the sync service more modular, but they're not really financially incentivized to do that, are they? So they're not gonna, you know. I have a hard time recommending Joplin because I do think Obsidian is better software, you know? So like I... I kind of like low key. I'm using Joplin. It's fine. Joplin's more Unix like, though. You know what I mean? Like it's do one job and do it well type software. Whereas Obsidian is trying to be all things to all men, I think. <laughs> is is it? <laughs> Have you looked at the plugins for Obsidian? There's so maybe? many. There's so many. <laughs> it's wild. That's one of the things that draws me in. I love the plugins. Then I always overdo it. I always overdo it. I have 27 plugins installed right now. <laughs> that, that would, that would that'd be me. That'd How many be... are you actively using? Uh, quite a lot. I would say more than 20, certainly. Um, wow. But if I go to their kind of plugin app store, the Obsidian plugin, community plugin repo, there are 957 to choose from. So the signal to noise is quite high, but also some of the stuff that those plugins can do is awesome. Yeah. And when new things come out, like your chat GPTs and whatnot. The GPTs? Yep. They, uh, you'll generally find somebody creates a plugin pretty quick. So that's a, it's a robust ecosystem at that too. Uh, Hanigan came in with 50,000 sets saying, great pod, guys. On terminal interfaces, check out Lazy Git and Lazy Docker. Okay, I actually might check out Lazy Git because that sounds like it's a product made for me. And it says it's a simple terminal UI for the lazy. No, for Git commands. Written in Go. Wow, it 
that actually looks really slick. So it, it definitely is like an Encurses style interface. And then it has sort of a command palette style UI that you can pull up and do Git commands. And it gives you a sidebar with like oh. all the local branches and the commits and remote branches. And look at that. That's actually legitimately a cool tool. I will put a link to that in the show notes. And again, it's called Lazy Git. And then the other one. All right. Now I got to go see what Lazy Docker is. Well, we we covered be? Lazy Docker in episode 59 okay. already. I seem to recall you and I generally poo pooed. Yeah. Okay. No, we poo pooed Portana, but we just, we, Lazy Docker is kind of fun. Yeah, it shows you. It's a good way to look at the processes of your. Yes, okay, I remember this. I never installed it again after the show, so I guess I didn't find it that useful. But it is a. It's a great way to just get your peepers hooked on what is going on with the different containers on your system, and get to their logs quick. And yeah, you could do all that with the command line, but apparently it supports the mouse too. Okay, both solid recommendations. All right, <laughs> who doesn't need the mouse on the terminal though? Right, you know what I mean? Oh yeah. Well, when you're SSH'd in from your Mac, I guess. <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, Anonymous came in with uh, 17,130, and uh, I, they, I think they forgot to put their name in there, but they were mentioning that there's a self-hostable Obsidian LiveSync. I just got it set up on the iPad, the Linux desktop, and Android. I have, I've used it for a few days so far without issue. Of course, I'm using end-to-end -end encryption. The LiveSync doesn't seem to work on mobile devices, but on periodic save and file opens, it does. The database I'm using, oh, so I guess you have to put your own database in there, is the IBM Cloudant. Tutorials for this are, and the self-hostable CouchDB are in the docs. I only have like 10 notes, but I'm planning to migrate my years of OneNote to Obsidian in the coming weeks. And then he links us to this live sync feature. We need some kind of Obsidian bell or something. <laughs> the Obsidian yeah. corner. It's becoming a bit of a juggernaut, isn't it? Yeah, like everybody's starting to. It's like it's almost becoming the VS Code of the space now. It's the, and it, it, they followed a similar model. It's they've VS Code was successful because it focused on plugins, if you ask me. And Obsidian's kind of doing the same thing. That's an interesting observation. Hmm. Yeah, and being at the right place at the right time too also helped with VS Code, and it's it's helping with Obsidian. It's solving a problem for people. And we all have so much freaking crap to remember. And we could all use notes better. Just, all of us. Just yesterday, I was upgrading the spark plugs in my Golf. And I was like, right, I need to write this down because I'm not going to remember in six months what the spec of the spark plug. I, you know, I could go through right. my Gmail and figure it out and waste yeah. 10 minutes going through and figuring no, it out. Don't but do that. I could also just write it in a work log for the car and then just know that before this track day that you did, you did this one upgrade to the spark plugs and... That went. That was when you last changed the oil and yada yada yada. You know, that's the way to do it. That's the way. Did you change the oil too? Uh, not yet. I've ordered the oil from FC FCP Euro. Of Are course. you going to do the top extraction? Yes, of course. Ah, of it's course. so great with the Golf. It's so great because the filter is right there. You don't have to go under the car at all when you use top extraction. It's so nice. Um, our last boost comes in from the shadow. Only the shadow knows. Uh, and they sent in four thousand ninety six. Uh, I'm a listener since episode one, longtime JB fan, first time boosting. Lovely. Tailscale recently released beta functionality for, co for custom ODIDC providers or ODIC providers, even for the free plans. For me, this was the main reason I was looking into self-hosting Headscale. I'll probably just go with proper Tailscale now. I'm still deciding on, on my ODIC provider. It's down to Dex versus Ori. So if anybody knows, I would not have an opinion. Uh, and I'm not sure where to host it, cloud versus home. I'm sort of bootstrapping this problem with a particular service since you need the internet to be accessible in order to authenticate your tailnet. I'm very interested if others have a home-hosted IDP, and I'd like to know what issues or tips they might have. And uh, boy, people are coming in with the solid links. Everybody provided references this week. He includes a link to Tailscale's uh, introduction of custom OIDCs. You love to see it. And uh, I highly recommend giving this blog post a read. At the bottom, it says, please don't roll your own IDP. <laughs> if you've gotten this far, it should be really obvious that that's a terrible, terrible idea. If you do want to host your own, though, we advise you use a solution like Keycloak, Dex, or, or Ori, O-R-Y. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they have a link to the docs for custom OIDC providers uh, at the bottom of the blog post. It reminds me of self-hosted emails. Like, don't do it. But if you really need to, here's how you should approach mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. 
Thank you, everybody who boosted. We read the top boosts on the show, and we appreciate it. Uh, go to the podcast index. You can boost right in there if you get Albie at getalbie.com or grab a new podcast app, a new podcast apps, or perhaps you'd like to subscribe monthly and support the production of the show as we enter in the rough ad season of uh, the latter half of 2023. The members will make more of a difference than ever. They help invest in the ongoing production of the show, and they get an ad-free feed as a thank you with a post-show, little extra bonus content. We really try to make it worth your while. You can sign up at selfhosted.show slash SRE, or you can support all the shows and get every single Jupiter Broadcasting show ad-free at jupiter.party. Indeed, big thank you to those site reliability engineers. Now, we've got a link in the show notes here to meetup.com slash Broadcasting. Do we have anything coming up in the near future, or are we all done for now? I think we're done for a bit, although I already was thinking maybe in a month or two we should do yeah, another one. I'm getting the itch already. We it's want, been a few days. We want to practice doing a show at the event. That's something we just want to practice. Well, there there is this little thing called Linux Fest Northwest coming up with uh, yeah, but that's like that's like that's like forever away. I know, but we need to practice. That's true. Plus, it's true. We we practice, if we're going right. to do a show at Linux Fest, yeah, we, we want practice. to be mint, so we got to. Mm-hmm. We want to be in. We want to when we do it at Linux Fest, we want to be in like pro oh, condition, yeah. like we have trained. Mm-hmm. Also, we should mention. I really think it would be great to get some self-hosted talks at, you know, anything about people doing stuff that can help get on board with self-hosting or maybe more advanced self-hosted things. Some talks at Linux Fest to represent the self-hosting community would be awesome. Their call for papers is open right now. Yours truly submitted one this week about uh, something to do with Ansible, I think. (laughs) You don't remember. I don't remember what it was. but Well, you don't have to have it all figured out. You know, you give them the pitch, make it sound good, you know, and then you you got the rest of the summer to figure it out. That's what the flight over is for. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Or the flight, yeah. Well, you have a drive over, so you got lots of time. Yeah, true. Yeah, and the hotel room's on the drive over. (laughs) So if you'd like to submit your paper, go to linuxfestnorthwest.org and click on the call for papers button. Brent, where can people uh, get a little more of you in their life before we get out of here? I'm thinking Linux Unplugged is a great place to find me, linuxunplugged.com. Sure. There you go. We had a real fun episode. We did have our meetup down at the uh, Boston Haba, and um, we set up a couple of listeners with Suicide Linux, and that is a distro that if you make a single typo, it RMRFs the entire box. It destroys everything. Oh my and God. we challenged them to get our Hugo site up and running. <laughs> it and- was yeah, it, it was, was so magically fun. It would be so <laughs> terrible as well because I always typo Jupiter. I always type Juptia. I don't know why. Really? Even after all this time, we had one guy uh, blow up his whole system because he mistyped clear. He wanted to just clear the screen. <laughs> oh, Control L. Oh no, that's such a needless yeah. one. Oh, no. Yeah, it is hilarious. And so we put some of the highlights in the most recent Linux Unplugged. It was good. It was fabulous. You can find me over at blog.ktz.me. All the links to my various things are over there. Mastodon, YouTube, Twitter, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, come find us in the Matrix too. jupiterbroadcasting.com slash matrix for that info. Thanks everyone for listening. This was selfhosted.show slash 96.